This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Instead of just wasting time and find purpose and find a way where I can serve society. Because sitting in a cell plus a society $80,000 a year is not paying my debt. I need to be productive. I need to do something positive. Hi. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, as we enter the new year to face yet another unprecedented crisis in our nation's capital, it's clear that the horrors of 2020 have spilled over into 2021 like some kind of toxic sludge. However, there is light at the end of the tunnel, with a new president coming in at the end of the month and with a vaccine being distributed to eradicate the pandemic. One ongoing tragedy, however, that does not have a cure in sight is the scourge of systemic racism in this country. Last year, much of the focus in this area was on police violence, with protests sweeping the United States to decry the shooting deaths of black men and women at the hands of officers. Now, however, some attention is shifting to the injustices on the other end of the criminal justice system, mass incarceration. A new exhibition at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco is currently addressing the subject in a uniquely powerful way. Called Meet Us Quickly, Painting for Justice from Prison, it includes artworks made by incarcerated artists, and it was organized by an incarcerated curator, Rasan New York Thomas, who is currently serving 55 to life at San Quentin State Prison for second-degree murder. The exhibition is digital only, to spare viewers risk from the pandemic, But San Quentin took no such precautions when it comes to inmates like Rassan, who came down with the coronavirus in July after the prison system transferred several infected people to the facility, which, as a 170-year-old prison crammed to 117% capacity, soon became engulfed by the virus. Now, a half year later, Rassan is healthy and the exhibition has become a big success. To discuss the concept behind Meet Us Quickly and talk about how art intersects with the struggle for police reform, I'm pleased to have Rasan on The Art Angle today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Rasan. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So tell me, where are you calling from right now? I am calling from a collect call phone booth at San Quentin State Prison on the first tier of North Lock. I'm in a phone booth and about 20 feet from me, it's cell number one north twelve, and there's just a row of cells on both sides of it. Looking up, there's five tiers of cells all together. Behind me is the seals podium, and about three feet from me, there's a yellow line that says out of bounds. <laughs> and I'm on phone number one, and so when I look in front of me, I see through the glass. Their glass are dirty though, but I can see the other guys on the first five phones that's on near me. Wow, how how many of them do you think are on podcasts right now? Uh, none. <laughs> I'm definitely the only one. I'm confident to say I'm definitely the only one talking on a podcast right now. So you have curated an extraordinary exhibition of work made by incarcerated artists, and I definitely want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to talk about the circumstances of your own incarceration. What sequence of events resulted in your being at San Quentin? Oh, um, that's deep. Basically... I had some character flaws, to make a long story short. I had a rough childhood growing up. I grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York. I was beat up a lot, a lot of fighting. And I started fighting back. But I wasn't trying to be tough. I was fighting for acceptance. I felt like if I was fought good enough, I would be respected. 
But the last straw for me with the fighting is when my brother got shot and I ran and left him behind. We were being robbed and instead of cooperating with the robbery, I tried to fight back because the guy lived two blocks away and I felt like if I let him rob me, I felt up his weak and soft, right? And so I tried to fight him and uh, I got my brother shot in both legs and he ran. That put me on the path of carrying guns and fast forward to 2000, I was the type of person that carried a gun, not only for self-defense, but to defend my identity. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I became known as somebody that you just don't mess with. I won't mess with you, but if you mess with me, it's a bad decision. Right? And so mm-hmm. I carried that gun around to defend that at all costs. And some things happened between me and two men who were also armed. And I ended up killing one of them, unfortunately. And seriously injured the other. And it's something I regret to this day. Wow. So... You've now served nearly 20 years of your sentence, and during your time in prison, you've accomplished some truly remarkable things. Just to name a few of them, you are currently the co-host of the Pulitzer Prize-nominated podcast, Ear Hustle. You're producing a short film for the Marshall Project, an organization you also write for. I believe you're about to complete your college education, and you've also curated this virtual art exhibition. So were you always such a renaissance man? No, no. I, I, on the streets, I didn't know what my talent or my purpose was. I was lost. I couldn't I couldn't figure it out, right? I had jobs, but I didn't, never had a career. And those yeah. jobs, uh, they didn't pay enough, man. Two jobs, two kids. It, I just was floating and lost. And so it's crazy that I had to come to prison and, and that it took so much pain in order for me to find myself. There's something Chadwick Bozeman said about the struggle prepares you for your purpose. And... It really struck me. And so now I embrace my struggle. I look for a way to make something good out of it because I feel like if I'm being good and God is good, then this is not bad. This just looks bad. It's going to work out for a higher purpose. Hmm. And I'm driven by remorse and I'm driven by purpose to just accomplish as much as I can. You clearly are very ambitious and you do a lot of things that are remarkable. I mean, you, you've completed, I think, the first full marathon that was run in San Quentin, which is amazing. Is, is that true? No, and not the first marathon. I have completed a marathon in San Quentin, and I have a record for the slowest time ever. Oh, uh, slowest time. <laughs> many people definitely have completed a marathon before me, especially that day. <laughs> so you obviously keep pretty busy, and a lot of people who don't have personal experience with incarceration, we may not really understand exactly what prison life is like. You know, you see in movies and TV, you know that there are the cells, there's the yard, the cafeteria. What is it actually like? What is your typical day of your life in prison like? Hey, so everybody knows that at times in certain prisons that are like maximum securities or prisons that are just wild, there's violence. But what people don't know is most of prison is just boring. A lot of chess games, a lot of pinochle, a lot of working out, a lot of wishing we had Netflix or anything cable so you can get a decent basketball game. It's a lot of waste of time. And you feel like, damn, my life is going to waste. I took a life. That was a waste. And it's just all this waste, waste, waste on top of waste. Hmm. And that's one of the things that drive me to make purpose out of this thing and see it as an opportunity to better myself, to read. Like, this is the perfect time to read because there's nothing good on TV tonight, right? So I'll be reading till 11 o'clock. It's just a, an opportunity to get into yoga and just find myself and just do different things instead of just wasting time and find purpose and find a way where I can serve society. Because sitting in a cell costing society $80,000 a year is not paying my debt. I need to be productive. I need to do something positive. So that brings us to your current exhibition, which is, which is definitely productive. It's called Meet Us Quickly, Painting for Justice from Prison. 
and it features 21 artworks by 12 incarcerated artists. How did this exhibition come about? Proximity. It came about through proximity. So one time I was listening to Brian Stevens. He came here and uh, on a bath of Patton College. He came here and did his thing. He did his speech, his spill. And he was amazing. And one of the things I took from it is that if you want to solve a problem, you have to be proximate to it. And so it just hit me. And, and I just started realizing that we have to get people to see us as people and see a value in us. They want to come in here and work with us or go through the trouble it takes to, like, write and be able to collect calls and all this stuff, right? And so how can we give people value? How can I do something to you that gives you value? What can I write? What can I do? What can I say? What, what, can, I account? what can we accomplish together? <laughs> and so in that vein, I was working with Taina from Initiate Justice, Taina Vargas Edmonds. We were working on trying to get people incarcerated and basically systematize the right to vote. And she's also part of a thing called Essie's Group, and so is Joseph Prada from Flyway Productions. And she wanted to do something with black and, and Jewish people uniting to uh, fight against mass incarceration. And she put a call out for somebody system impacted. And because the web of connections, uh, it hit prison renaissance's ears. And I ended up getting a letter in the mail with this fancy logo on it with somebody dancing in the air. And it's from Joe Crowder. And she introduced herself in this letter and told me about what she was trying to do. And one of the partners was Moad, the Museum of African Dysphoria and Counterpost. And so I was really excited. Just really excited. Somebody wanted to like go through the trouble to include me in something so major and something so meaningful. How did you choose the artists in the show, and how did you choose the artworks? I'm not a professional curator. This is my first time curating anything. Hmm. So I just went with my eye, like what spoke to me. And I've long been a fan of several artists here at San Quentin, like Antoine Williams and the Mavis and Bruce Fowler and and uh, O. Smith. I've long been a fan of these guys. These guys are amazing. And, and they, they, their work speaks to me. It, it, it talks to me. And knowing them and knowing, like, LaMavis taught himself how to paint or learned how to paint here at San Quentin. Never did it before in his life. And he's reading all these books on impressionism and all this stuff. And he's applying it to his paintings. And he created a style called Fusion, which uses multiple different styles in one painting. Um, four or five times, different styles, different techniques. These guys are amazing. And I just went by my eye, like, what speaks to me? I love Bruce Fowler's picture of Roof, but before Roof, he did this painting for of the sun that was on a sun caged up for CBS Morning Show when Air Hustle was on there. Hmm. And I've been a fan of Roof ever since. And Banks, I work with Banks. His art stays on the wall. It's amazing. So basically, I just chose what I thought was beautiful, and I hope the world agrees. So you mentioned Bruce Fowler's painting of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and in his artist statement. Fowler calls himself the RBG's, quote, most unlikely admirer. What is the story behind this painting? Oh, that's a deep question. That would be a question to best ask to Bruce, but just what little I can add to that is that, I mean, that's a, a Supreme Court judge, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And we're incarcerated, and judges and courtrooms and DAs are just usually not things you're a fan of, especially when you first get incarcerated and you're like, man, even if I did it, that's a lot of time, judge, right? And so I think that's one of the reasons why he calls himself an unlikely admirer. I think there's other reasons, but I'd rather leave that to Bruce to talk about. But it's one of my favorite paintings in the exhibit. Definitely admirer of, of, of RBG as well. And you mentioned Antoine Williams, who is also the co-creator and sound designer for Ear Hustle. I'm just going to say he's one of the most talented people I know. When it comes to art, he's a true Renaissance man because he does everything from clothes to designing to filming to directing to drawing, to creating music, to singing, to cutting hair, to fashion. This guy's it, man. Hmm. 
It's interesting that along with Erlone Woods, the podcast's third co-founder, is Nigel Poor, who is a Bay Area artist. I wonder, is it possible that Ear Hustle itself is an art project of sorts? I definitely feel like Nigel brings a very creative aspect to it as well as things. I mean, we all do, but like she definitely has an artistic mind being a photographer. Seeing a story from an artist's point of view is definitely a part of every story. It definitely is the lens we look out of. I would agree. And also, I think that the stories do come out like a work of art. I never thought of it like, so this question like kind of surprised me. But um, I'm realizing now that like the way we put the stories together, it is a work of art because we take something that people think of as ugly and horrible or disregard at all and don't think about it at all. And we put it in people's consciousness. You know what I mean? As something beautiful, as something humane. And I think that is a work of art. It's really interesting to see the artworks in your exhibition because there's a whole range of styles, a whole range of mediums. And it makes me wonder, what are the resources that are available for making art in prison? Are, are there any restrictions when it comes to materials or subject matter? Definitely, definitely. Certain subject matter wouldn't be allowed. It wouldn't get past the squad, like when you're trying to mail it out. So like something obscene, something that was provocative. Not too much. Other than that, you pretty much have freedom of speech. As far as materials, you can order from catalogs. They have great array of stuff you can order and buy and have in your cell and do stuff with. Also, these guys have an art place called Arts and Collection Room, a space here. But William James is nice enough to provide art supplies for these guys. So they definitely have access to a lot of stuff available. Are there any materials that you're not allowed to have access to? There are some things you, you can't have in your cell. Now, like, if you want to use, like, an exacto knife, right, you can have, you have to check it out on the correction and use it right then and there. Mm -hmm. uh, so certain tools you definitely cannot have in your cell, but they're available to you by giving a, uh, the person in charge your ID, and they'll loan you to you temporarily while you're in that room, while you're being supervised. You've written about the empathy-building power of art, the way that art can help people have a greater empathic response towards a subject. Can you talk a little bit about the link between art and empathy and why that matters, especially when it comes to art by prisoners? Yeah, it matters for a lot of reasons. Well, first of all, they say the eyes are the window to the soul, right? What an artist does, he paints his soul on that canvas. You know, he takes what he sees and gives it to the world. And when you see that, I think you see the humanity in, in people. And empathy is very important because I know, like, nobody wants to hear, like, oh, my mom beat me or I grew up in a rough neighborhood, so I had to rob you. Nobody wants to hear that crap. And that's, that's understandable because it's not excusable. We have to be accountable no matter how rough our lives were. We must never give away our power to make the right choice. And that's 100% true. But the other truth is that most crime doesn't happen because people are evil. Most crime happens because people are traumatized, because people are poor and, and are isolated and lack opportunities. And so if we're not empathetic to the reasons why crime happens, then we'll continue to have a flawed system that seeks to punish crime after it happens. You know? You punish crime after it happens, somebody's dead, somebody else goes to jail, two lives are wasted. But if you're empathetic to the root causes of crime and you address them, you know what I mean? You stop crime before it ever happens because you address the root causes of it, and nobody ever gets hurt, you know? And that's the kind of system I would like to see. And so having empathy, you get to hear somebody struggles. And it's not an excuse. We're not looking for you like, oh, what was you, poor baby? You get a... No. 
it's like this is a reason why this happened, and if we deal with this reason, it won't happen no more in the next generation. I'm literally in a prison with like, at some point, there's like 1,200 lifers running around pretty much free all day long, right? They got free movement when it's normal program, and it's one of the safest places I've ever been because guys take those programs and they deal with their trauma, and they make social connections, and they get their vocational groups on, the education goes on, and they go home, change men, and they don't come back. All my friends are doing amazing things out there, and it's like a hundred of them out there now, and none of them are coming back, right? Hmm. And so when we address these root causes, crime doesn't happen. That's a very noble goal for for the show to raise this spirit of empathy when it comes to the incarcerated. There's also a more practical aim the show seems to have, which is that the artworks are going to be auctioned off at the end of the exhibition. So what do you hope to achieve with the auction? The auction actually just closed. I hope to achieve that, number one, that people see the value of incarcerated art. Hmm. Um, and we did decent. Five or six of the painting sold, so some didn't sell. Maybe the opening bid was too high, but I thought it was important that we have opening bids that respect the value of the artist's work. I've seen artwork on TV that have sold for like 30000 and 20000 and I felt like the, the, our artists are just as good, and the stigma of prison shouldn't be judged by that or belittled or undervalued because of that. And so I hope to get past the stigma of incarceration and have guys seen not as incarcerated artists, but just as artists. I'm curious, is there any market for artworks within prison, as in buying and selling artworks among themselves? Definitely, definitely. I just saw a beautiful painting where a guy took a picture of a couple, and he took this couple and reimagined them and put them in, like, African royalty garb. It looks amazing. Hmm. I'd like to see guys that come home to fully develop art careers ready to take the ground running, you know? So here's a little bit of a kind of a philosophical question, because... As we all know, people in prison are there for a wide range of reasons. You know, some serving mandatory sentences that are unduly harsh. Some are actually innocent. And then on the extreme opposite end, there are some who are serving time for committing truly heinous crimes. You know, if you, if you look at the serial killers Charles Manson or John Wayne Gacy, they actually made thousands of artworks in prison. I think Charles Manson was even in San Quentin. And there is an enthusiastic market on the outside for them. I think a painting by Gacy once sold for $175,000. What do you make of this phenomenon that the more kind of reprehensible or infamous an artist in prison is, the more demand there seems to be for their work in some ways? Yeah, I don't understand it. But that's the world we live in where, you know, you can get millions of dollars for being in a movie but 30000 a year for being a teacher. Mm. That's just the world we live in. But I definitely would like to figure out like how we can get our artists valued on that level as well. I would like to even go as far to say I think the, the guys I know that are ready to return as productive citizens are probably more deserving. I mean, that raises the question, do you think that art by anyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, is something to be celebrated? That's a tough question. I think that I would ultimately say yeah, though. I would ultimately say, yeah, because we don't know. Like, I sat down with Ear Hustle and did an interview with someone who molested children. And when you hear how they got to that path, you think of it differently. Like, yo, that's not cool. I'm not going to let you hurt my kids. But, damn, I can't judge you. Because if that happened to me, who would I be? And so I don't know anybody's backstory. And so we're just judging by the worst thing they've ever done. But I do know a lot of people have done bad things, and now they're very good people. And it's just a matter of dealing with the issues, right? And so it's just really hard to judge or make a blanket statement. Mm -hmm. But I think that you separate the art 
from the act. The art itself is something different, and that's how I look at it. You know, I think a lot of top curators would absolutely agree with you. You're speaking like a, a true curator. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. This year's protests over police violence have galvanized public attention on the front end of the legal system, but the condition of the incarcerated and the forces that shape their sentences is still not something that is front and center in the public imagination, perhaps in part because smartphone footage of police killings are uniquely capable of grabbing your attention. However, the statistics around America's prisons are absolutely shocking. The United States has 2.3 million people in penal facilities, the largest number in the world. Black people constitute 33% of the prison population, despite only being 12% of the overall population. And according to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, one out of three black men should expect to be incarcerated within their lifetimes. So what do you think people need to know about the carceral state in America today? Yeah, I think that what people don't understand is that our policing problem is tied to our incarceration problem. They're married, right? A lot of times we see people marching against police shootings of unarmed black men, but there's no uproar when black people shoot black people, which is a worse issue, which would have higher rates, right? But they're the same issue. For instance, growing up in my neighborhood, I never felt like the police cared. Like, they were never going to protect me. And so I felt like I got to protect myself. And going to the cops would make me a snitch for nothing because they're not going to do nothing. And now I'm going to be labeled a snitch who's going to put me in more danger. And that's the kind of atmosphere and police system I grew up under. But it's deeper than that. Um, right now, we're marching for reforms. And we're after police officers. And that's just the wrong attitude to me. A police officer who goes to work with honest intentions to do a good job of protecting society, shouldn't end up with manslaughter charges because they're not trained to deal with a certain situation. And so the problem is not individual police, but I'm talking about the average cop who might just be scary or might have some racial bias or unconscious of it, which is human. That's human things, all right? We don't like it. It's not cool, but it's human. The problem is we need to rethink policing. Like I was saying earlier, policing is about punishing crime with violence and creates more cycle of violence. Like, putting somebody in prison is isolation, is poverty, is potential being a victim of violence, which are root causes of crime. And so if we thought about, like, the problems with policing and stop going after police, we could fix this system and create something new that stops the, the root causes of crime and eliminates the need for prisons. And I think that uh, a lot of prison time is unnecessary. I've seen people rehabilitate in, in years, like 5, 10, 15 years, you can... Change the whole person's mind state. You don't need to have people in here 30, 40, 50 years. And we're paying for that. We're paying 80000 a year in California for that. And at a time when money should be going to COVID, we need to stop going after individual police and go after the whole system of policing. You mentioned a little bit earlier an organization called Prison Renaissance that you founded. What is Prison Renaissance? Prison Renaissance is the organization that me and Emil DeWeaver started on the yard along with Carlos Meza. And it's about finding a way to connect incarcerated people, incarcerated artists in particular, to society and communities that need us. So we um, take part in conversations when dealing with mass incarceration or social justice issues or things that we're experts on, uh, so we can add value to the world, and so we can like break down these barriers between incarceration and being free. You said the phrase, connect incarcerated people to the communities that need them, uh, and that's a quote from the mission statement. And it's an interesting phrase because typically you think of inmates as being the ones who are in need rather than the free communities that are outside the prison walls. I read a story in the New York Times about a brother from Queensbridge who was formerly incarcerated. 
and two guys from Queensbridge were going 10 paces. 10 paces means they were backing away from each other. They both had guns. And like, wow, wow, West, they're going to shoot each other, all right? And this guy got between them and stopped it and broke it up, got them both to leave, and then mediated with one guy and mediated with the other guy and brought them together and squashed his beef. I believe without anybody going to prison and nobody getting stopped, all right? Mm-hmm. And they said that uh, Queensbridge went a year without any shootings. And it's the biggest housing project in New York City. Only a guy who's been there, who has street credibility, who changes life, would do that and could do that. All right? They're not going to listen to anybody. I'm part of a program called Squires here at San Quentin. And we talk to kids that come from, from rough situations. They come in like two Saturdays a month, pre-pandemic, right? And they open up to us and tell us stuff they never told nobody. It's the emotional issues or the root causes of their bad behavior. And the reason why they do that is we tell them our stories. We tell them why we're here. And when we tell them not the glamorous story, the real story. I'm with hurting and I reacted like this because I went through this and that. And they hear their own story in us. And they realize that, wow, these guys understand us. And they open up, right? But they don't do that for anybody else. And so we have a value to society. It's something underutilized. It's amazing how focused you are on this idea of giving back. You have a freedom fund for Rasan New York Thomas on um, a site called payit2.com. And right now you have nearly $2,000 for a target of $35,000 raised, which is an incredible start as of tonight. And what is your personal path forward? How are you positioning yourself to be able to go out in the world and give back to the community? I plan to do that on both a macro level and a micro level. And so when I say a macro level, I mean using multimedia, using podcasts, using film, documentaries, writing, writing books and stories that address social justice issues, right, in creative ways, right? Because I feel like, you know, everybody's not going to read a book. Uh, film gets around as a more powerful medium. And I want to continue counseling. I want to continue to counsel the youth, man, directly, so I can stay connected to them and understand the nuances of the latest, whatever they're going through. I think that's important. So those are the two ways I plan on doing that. And then I'm going to still do uh, social justice stuff on the side, like direct advocacy, looking to get laws changed, sitting down with politicians, doing whatever I can. Because in my neighborhood, seven out of ten people went to jail, right? Seven out of ten. So the odds weren't really pretty good. But I'm exceptional, right? So you can't apply exceptionalism to me because I'm one of the guys that should have made it in the first place. Instead, I became part of the problem. And so uh, I got to make up for that. And I know my case is there's some issues with it, right, legally. But at the same time, I still live that life. I was still part of the problem. And there's no if, ands, or buts about that. And I have to take full accountability for that and do everything I can to fix it. I'm going to be doing something good to the day I die. Do you think that there are more art exhibitions in your future? Definitely. Actually, uh, the pandemic shut down the best part. Joe from Flyway Productions had a bunch of her dancers ready to fly through the air in front of Moab at opening day and move on to counterpost, and that aspect got shut down. And so now the vaccine's here. Maybe in the summer, we'll be able to get that part going. And the auction's closed, so whatever is not sold will definitely be uh, at that show. And we'll probably mix that with a couple of new ones and have another auction. I'm curious about something, which is that with your exhibition, you've chosen to use art as a means of raising awareness about the lives of the incarcerated. And yet the world's top art institutions are actually kind of ambivalent when it comes to incarceration. A perfect example is that just now, MoMA PS1 Museum in Queens has a show called Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, while at the same time, one of MoMA's trustees, Larry Fink, 
is personally financially invested in private prison companies. And this is something that has actually, you know, generated a lot of protests. There have been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of, of blowback against the museum because of Larry Fink. Do you think that the art world can be an honest broker when it comes to issues of mass incarceration when you have these situations where the money is coming <laughs> directly connected to the prison system? Definitely have this rule about not financing my own incarceration. Learning from Curtis Wall Street Carroll about financial literacy, uh, I'm one that likes to save my money and prepare for my own retirement. Didn't work long enough in society, I saw security. And so I'm definitely against financial own incarceration. So I think there should be a separation between people profiting from incarceration to just trying to display the humanity of incarcerated people. Sounds contradictory to me. I think it sounds contradictory to me too. It's very, it's pretty, pretty contradictory. So you mentioned this is a perfect time to be reading a book. What are you reading right now? Right now, I just finished The Wondrous World of Oscar Wilde, and I'm getting ready to read an Octavia Butler book. But the book of last month that I read, that I just forgot to reading Cass, which I freaking love. I pretty much read a book every two weeks, sometimes every week. Wow, Rashawn, you're pretty inspirational. It's, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. And just one last thing I want to add in. Prison Renaissance has this program called Empowerment Avenue, where we match incarcerated writers with three people to help them edit, transcribe, and pitch their stories in major publications and get our voices into the conversation. So look out for that on Prison Renaissance website whenever it shows up. And that's what's up. I'm going. That's great. Thank you very much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, man. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.